0: American citizens are surprisingly ignorant about their own government. For example, a 2017 survey conducted by the Annenberg Public Policy Center found that only about 34% of Americans could name even one of the three branches of the federal government. Such ignorance can have serious consequences for elections. An Ohio State University study found that around 45% of voters in the 2016 election believed in a number of wildly fake news stories such as that Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump, or that Hillary Clinton had sold weapons to Islamic terrorists. The study suggests that belief in these stories may have led to Donald Trump's election. If you look at what Americans actually read, it's no wonder they don't have all the important facts. Newswhip.com, a site that tracks how people engage with stories across all social networks, found that the 19th most engaged-with story in 2019 was titled... 29 quotes by Keanu Reeves that will give you a different perspective on life. Isn't it the press's job to give us information that can help us make informed decisions? Or not? In his 1922 book, Public Opinion, writer Walter Lippmann asks this very question. What is the role of the press in a democracy? This was a paradigm-shifting book in the fields of media history and political theory, and for media historian Heidi Torek.
1: This, for me, was a book that really changed how I thought about the work that I was doing on the history of news. It really pushed me to think about how do people who are reading the news interpret it and also how do people within the press, but also within other political institutions, think about what the press should be doing? Do they put too much emphasis on it? So I'm Heidi Tvorak. I'm an assistant professor of international history at the University of British Columbia. So I work on uh, the history of media and of international relations, particularly in a transatlantic context in the 20th century.
0: A century after the book's publication, Lippmann's words still ring true.
1: Here we find ourselves 100 years later, effectively asking the same questions. How much of a burden do you put on the press or media or today social media platforms to inform people how much is it the role of institutions? How much is it the role of a single voter, etc.? All of those are these enormous big questions that he throws up that we keep grappling with.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Torek to talk about Walter Lippmann's 1922 book public opinion. Here's Professor Torek reading a bit of the text.
1: If the newspapers then are to be charged with the duty of translating the whole public life of mankind so that every adult can arrive at an opinion on every moot topic, they fail. They are bound to fail. In any future one can conceive, they will continue to fail.
0: Walter Lippmann was born in New York City in 1889. He joined the press early in his career. In 1914, he co-founded a magazine called The New Republic, and he remained in media for his whole career.
1: And if you spoke to people who knew Walter Lippmann, they might not immediately think about this work. They might think about what he does later when he continues to write as a journalist who is syndicated through all of the major newspapers in the U.S. after World War II. He helps to introduce the concept of the Cold War, for example. He wins a couple of Pulitzers, For the quality of his newspaper columns, he ends up becoming um, friends with Lyndon Johnson, initially somewhat advising him, but later falling out with him because Lippmann becomes very critical of the Vietnam War. So if we want to think about a newspaper columnist who pretty much everyone who was picking up a newspaper in the 60s would know, that would be Walter Lippmann. But I think this early work is just so interesting because it lays the foundation for the much more popular columns he writes later.
0: Lippmann's view of the press was impacted by his time in the U.S. Army. He joined the army toward the end of World War I. He became a captain in the intelligence unit and an advisor to Woodrow Wilson. Through these experiences, he got a close look at how the U.S. government used propaganda to inform and manipulate the public.
1: And then after the war, he, together with a man called Charles Mertz, who will later become um, the editor of the New York Times, decides to look at how the New York Times was covering one of the major events of this period, which is the Russian Revolution. So the two of them look at how the New York Times covers it and they find that the coverage is deeply flawed and deeply inaccurate.
0: In what way did he think it was flawed and biased?
1: Oh, he thought it was just wrong. <laughs> so he shows how there are specific inaccuracies in this coverage. So it just it's that it's incorrect. So if the pro- promise of news is to provide you with accurate information upon which you the informed public will decide how to vote, then his problem was that the New York Times coverage was actually Simply false.
0: Informing the public was an especially big topic of debate at that moment. In 1919, the country saw its most significant expansion of voting rights in history with the passage of the 19th Amendment.
1: We often think of the 19th Amendment as the moment when women are given the right to vote. Um, But actually, if you look back at the very, very early history of the U.S. with the 13 colonies, um, in New Jersey, briefly, uh, widows and other women of wealth were able to vote for a very short period of time before that ends up being removed. But after World War I in many places in Europe, in Germany, in Britain, and also in the US, the sort of sacrifices of the war help to push for a new ideal of liberal democracy, where women are also seen as those who can vote. And thus come also many of these questions about how they're going to know how to vote. And Lippmann doesn't talk about this explicitly, but it's certainly something that is being thought about, I think, in many of these texts, which are primarily written by men.
0: My understanding is at least some of the argument against extending suffrage to women, to um, people of other races, was not just misogyny and, you know, bigotry, although that was part of it, but but concerns about how much information um, you needed to have or a certain kind of education. So I think at, at some of the anxiety is, For democracy to function, you need informed citizens. So how are you going to inform the citizens? And can we trust that it's not going to devolve into tyrannical mob rule? I guess that's the constant tension that some of the concern about how informed the citizenry is is getting at.
1: Yeah, and I think especially for the U.S., The idea of having an informed public who can vote actually really lies at the heart of even the foundation of the United States. So the only major federal agency there was at the foundation of the U.S. was the post office.
0: The Constitutional Post was created in 1775, one year before the United States gained its independence from Britain. And it was created for one reason, to spread the news. In 1792, President George Washington signed the Postal Service Act, which established the U.S. Postal Service Department and set the price to mail letters, packages, and newspapers. Newspapers were a key way that American voters stayed informed, and informed voters were the foundation of American democracy. So, under the Postal Service Act, newspaper publishers could mail their newspapers for under two cents. Letters, on the other hand, cost anywhere from six to 25 cents, depending on distance. By 1830, newspapers accounted for 95% of the weight of all mail. But they accounted for only 15% of the revenue.
1: So Lippmann comes out of this long tradition in the United States where actually the provision of information throughout the country to all sorts of small localities was something that the U.S. government prides itself on doing uh, from the start.
0: Not everyone celebrated the press's role in American democracy. In 1919, the writer Upton Sinclair published The Brass Check, in this book, he argued that the press was controlled by big businesses and the forces of capitalism.
1: A Lippmann says, well, perhaps Sinclair is right, but ultimately that's not the real problem. The problem is that we're placing too much of a burden on the press to accomplish things that simply cannot. It cannot inform all people about all things at all times. Um, And in part, why Lippmann's book is so important is because he he helps to really kick off a huge number of ways in which communication scholars and media studies scholars will look at the press. And part of that is by thinking about how readers are not just all exactly the same, that they interpret the world in different kinds of ways. That's very different from Sinclair, who's just looking at and accusing newspapers of being capitalists. He's not really thinking about how people interpret what they read.
0: This was a major shift from the way that media critics had been examining the role of the press in a democracy. Rather than looking at what journalists wrote, Lipman looked at how readers read.
1: So what he does in the book is he starts by um, describing how people understand the world and so on and so forth, how news functions. He becomes quite skeptical about really the influence of the press and even more so skeptical about the burden that other institutions place upon the press. And then he ends by making an argument that this, in fact, means that we should rely less on ordinary voters and more on a technocracy. So that's the part, I think, that that many people fundamentally and viscerally uh, disagree with. But it's worth knowing that what he's writing is leading toward that kind of argument about the vision of how he thinks society should be ruled. So I think we can take inspiration from different parts of it, while not necessarily agreeing with the fundamental political vision he comes out with at the end.
0: Why did he arrive at that conclusion? What, what is his argument there?
1: So one of the things that Lippmann says in the book is, well, what we have to remember is that whenever we read the news, wherever we are, we're not just going to blindly accept whatever is said. We actually interpret it through the pictures of the world we have in our heads already, which he then says are stereotypes. So his argument there is essentially that if we understand that whenever people read the news, they look at it through stereotypes, they may not necessarily be as interested in the quote-unquote worthy parts of the news. They might be more interested in the human interest stories, the crime, etc., not the really sort of nitty-gritty things about democracy. And if we understand that newspapers can't possibly report on everything, then his argument is it's very hard for voters to actually be fully informed on the huge range of issues they would need to be fully informed on in order to vote. They can't be experts in all things.
0: Lipman believed that if voters can't be fully informed, then we need some more knowledgeable group to make the decisions that voters can't.
1: So I think he's more interested in thinking about how could you have experts and elites informing policymaking In different kinds of ways. So it's not just that you would elect somebody and then hope that politicians will get on with it, but he's really arguing for um, the role of academics or other types of experts and technocratic elites and helping to figure out how things should function, including uh, political scientists and others.
0: I mean, I lived in DC for a year. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of think tanks and lobby groups and um, experts all jockeying to get their policy enacted. In some ways, we have a technocracy of the kind Lippmann seemed to imagine. What what would he say if he saw our current K Street DC functioning?
1: (laughs) Oh, it's a good question, because when he's writing this text, it's also the exact moment that many of the most prestigious of these think tanks are either being founded or really coming into their own. If he looked, though, at the contemporary way in which this functions, I don't think that that would be something he would be as keen on, in part because so much of K Street, as you allude to, is not really, in fact, about a technocratic elite of experts, but more about lobbying on behalf of particular businesses. So I think his vision, I wonder, it would be interesting. I think he would probably see an imbalance in what we have now. Um, Certainly, I think he didn't foresee the role of big business lobbying necessarily as being part of what he wanted, but more having different kinds of academic expertise come to the table.
0: Another conversation that Lippmann was part of was whether and how the government should use propaganda to influence the public. Some scholars argued that propaganda was a good way to get the public on the government's side. Other scholars argued that propaganda was the tool of our enemies and should be avoided at all costs.
1: So I would see this text as being part of this broader scholarly but also maybe educated public conversation about how you should be informed and what are the ways that you're allowed to inform people so can you be propagandistic or not and this was a very live debate and it continues i think in different veins all the way up to today what should we do with advertising how much political advertising is allowed How much public relations is good for us? How much are we allowed to persuade people? A completely live debate, even over the last few weeks, as Facebook has said it will allow political advertising. And if you're a political candidate, you can write whatever you want. And Twitter has just said we'll ban all political advertising. (laughs) So that's a totally live debate that goes all the way back, I think, to this moment that Lippmann is inserting himself into about what are the legitimate means that a government or politicians can use to try and persuade a public? So
0: there's this larger effort to educate the populace. So news was seen as one way that this happens. What are other ways that, you know, concerned elites were trying to educate the, the hoi polloi?
1: Yes, there are a vast range of efforts, some of which I think really go back to the late 19th century. So in the late 19th century, you've had mass urbanization. That's the moment you get mass newspapers, because you can have mass urban newspapers, but it's also the moment of public libraries and of big talks. And all of these, I think, go together in an effort for elites and philanthropists to think through how do we educate people in a world where we now also have mass literacy. So we see a lot of movements in the interwar period, for example, to provide books about international affairs around the United States. so You can keep Americans involved in international relations, even as the US has decided not to become part of, for example, the League of Nations. So I see a lot of what Lippmann or someone like John Dewey is doing as part of that broader effort to educate Americans that had been happening since the late 19th century, but perhaps also part of thinking about, in Lippmann's case, what are the potential limits of that? So this is, his is not a vision of endless optimism where, people become perfectly informed and therefore rational voters. He's actually pointing towards, I think quite presciently, the limits of what this can achieve. And later scholars, including particularly Jewish German emigres who come to the US in the 1930s, will pick up on this and start to think about the potential negative effects of having uh, some people be influenced by, for example, new media technologies.
0: So so far, I, I've heard you mention several ways in which uh, Lippmann is raising questions and participating in conversations. But how did his ideas change the way we think about democracy, our country, and the world?
1: Big question. Let me give you let's let's do three. Uh, so the first is I think starting a conversation that dies down somewhat after World War II, but has really resurged in the last five years, which is the question of the reality of how voters operate in a democracy versus the theory. So the idea that we have a theory, the utopia, that when every voter goes to the polls, they have fully informed themselves on policy. They really think about if they're, say, reelecting somebody, what have they achieved over the course of their entire term and so on and so forth. And Somebody following in the Lippmann tradition would say, well, we have plenty of reasons to be skeptical of that. We know that people interpret the world through stereotypes. We know that they're not omnicompetent. They only have a limited amount of time to inform themselves. They may not be voting in an ideal fashion. So that's, I think, one of the conversations that Lippmann really helps to begin, that at times goes away, but has really come back over the last four to five years as people try to grapple with why we have the rise of voting for certain types of uh, political candidates? And what does that mean about even being an informed voter? And how do we grapple with the reality versus the ideal of what we think about democracy? The second thing that this book really changes is that um, for many scholars, for example, Michael Shudson, who's at Columbia, he calls Walter Lippmann the father of media studies, because Lippmann is interested not just in the content, but he's interested in the effects of how the press works. And from my perspective, he's also interested in how the press interacts with other institutions and other elites. So he basically kicks off with this book a whole bunch of questions that we're still trying to answer 100 years later, including, does the press set the agenda? Uh, Does the press do things that maybe other institutions like government agencies or courts should be doing? Uh, What really are the effects of media? These are enormous questions we're still grappling with and arguing about. So in that sense, that the book is massively influential. And then I think the, the third is just some of the vocabulary we have to talk about this. The fact that we use the word stereotypes in the way that we do um, can be traced back to this book. And there are relatively few books where you can say they create a concept that we use all the time and we don't even remember which book it came from.
0: What would Lippmann say about our modern media
1: ecosystem, do you think? So I think Lippmann would be concerned when he looked at the contemporary news world in the ways in which the shortness of what we are presented with really undermines the ability to convey complex issues. So he would worry about, for example, how when we look at the length of television clips displaying what politicians say, they've gone down over the last 20 years from about 30 seconds to about seven seconds. If you have seven seconds, the ability to convey convey complexity is essentially nil. So I think for him, even though he's skeptical of the readers or now we would say the user's ability to fully comprehend everything that's going on, it doesn't mean that he doesn't think people are capable of understanding complexity. But I think he would worry about how some of the new ways that we use to convey information essentially in their format make complexity almost impossible.
0: And I can't help but think about the contrast with our era where the Postal Service was subsidizing local newspapers in order to support local democracy. And now we have these media giants, which essentially suck all of the revenue away from local journalism. It's troubling about the way we let concentration um, and and media changes... um, it almost seems like the government needs to step in again and subsidize local journalism.
1: Oh, it's such a good question. And it really depends on where you're sitting as to whether you see government subsidies as an answer. So first, I would say that that those of us who are working in media studies have been trying to sound the alarm about local news as the real problem for some time. Over the last couple of years, I think there's become a much greater awareness of this problem with the idea of things like news deserts where there are huge numbers of communities in the U.S. that simply no longer have a local newspaper, and that even quite large cities, if they do have a local newspaper, it's actually owned by a big conglomerate. And so many of the stories are reprinted from elsewhere. There's very few local journalists. So I think now we see much more of an awareness of this as a problem, I don't think we need to worry as much about coverage of Washington D.C. I think the, the New York Times is already breaking even; it's going to be okay. It may not be a money-making machine, but for the foreseeable future, it will survive. The Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, will survive. The Wall Street Journal will survive. But what about newspapers in Kansas? Newspapers in Arkansas? Those are, I think, the the real concerns. To answer the second part of your question, which is, should governments step in and subsidize? From the perspective of a country like Canada, the answer is yes. So Canada has for a few years been thinking through what would happen if newspapers essentially disappeared. (laughs) There's a much smaller market and there are a couple of big media chains which have really concentrated ownership. And the Canadian government's answer has been to provide 600 million Canadian dollars of subsidies to newspapers. On the one hand, you can see this is a good thing, subsidizing news. On the other hand, there are potential side effects of undermining public trust in news because they feel it's being subsidized by a certain government, the liberal government. And the conditions that have been attached to this raise some question marks about whether it's preserving old forms of news. So to get the subsidy, you have to cover a broad range of news. So you couldn't be a startup that just covered one issue um you have to have full-time employees and so on so it means you're generally going to be supporting newspapers that already exist and not different kinds of outlets that are maybe tailor-made for the 21st century
0: if you are a concerned citizen recognizing the limits of our ability to understand everything how do we do the best we can to be informed about our world
1: yeah so i think it's there's there's a distinction, right, between understanding that we're all human beings with limits versus giving up. (laughs) And so if we want to be informed citizens, there are, of course, still a host of ways of being able to do that, whether it's subscribing to the news outlets that cover the things that we particularly are interested, to thinking about the many ways in which citizens indeed can be involved in the causes that matter to them. It can be volunteering, it can be writing comments to government initiatives on the things that really matter to us, or it can be, at least in the United States, running for various forms of local office because the US has so many different layers of local government that one can get involved in. So I think there are ways of deciding which is the slice of the pie that we want to take and and not feeling defeated by the fact that the world is complex, which indeed it is, but perhaps to figure out what is the slice that slice the pie that we're going to eat and then to to delve into that. And certainly something that um, others like Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone, talk about is the the lack of community life and the decline of community engagement within the United States. And it's interesting to see the, the contrast just in terms of statistics between the US and, say, uh, a place like Canada. So I think one of the ways that that people can try and push back against that complexity is simply by becoming involved in various forms of community and volunteer activities.
0: Okay, great. And now here's a sort of very philosophical question. As human knowledge has accumulated over time, do we know more now? That
1: is indeed a very philosophical question. I guess in in a social science where we we would have to ask how do we measure the more So certainly if we look at the amount of information that we today consume, it is far more than we have ever been confronted with throughout human history. The amount of words that we see as we scroll through our social media is far more than we ever had access to even during a television era. But I think that one of the things that Lippmann's text reminds us is that there's a difference between the amount of information we receive and the amount of knowledge that we have. So I think I would say that that to me is a key distinction is really trying to understand how much has this deluge essentially of information contributed to increasing our knowledge and our analytical abilities and how far might in fact the delivery mechanisms be detrimental to these broader goals that the question hints at.
0: Would you say this is one of the more important, skeptical, or concerned views about the American Democratic Project. I mean, so this is in the 20s. I I guess I'm just wondering, is this when (laughs) Americans start to be worried? Like, oh, democracy is more complicated than we thought it is. I mean, of course, the Civil War. I mean, there's there's so many moments (laughs) where it raises questions about whether democracy can work the way we want. But it does feel like it gets at a deeper worry than just, you know, human equality, is are we psychologically capable in a complex world of governing ourselves?
1: We today think our world is deeply complex. Remember, 100 years ago, people like Lippmann are grappling with exactly this same question of is the world already too complex for the individual voter who is going on the subway to work and can only read the newspaper for half an hour, can that voter really grapple with the complexity of society? So it turns out that question has been around for a very long time. And if we understand it as a question that isn't new to the internet age, isn't new to our present moment of globalization, but actually something that maybe has been inherent to modern democracy, I think that can actually perhaps assuage us a little bit because the skepticism of a Lippmann – sounds very similar to the skepticism of people talking about democracy today. And yet, post-1922, we'll see some of the, the greatest strengths of American democracy, right? So it says that that's what a democracy does, is to consistently question itself and its methods and think about how to reform them. So I see it in a way, you can see it as a pessimism about The limits of democracy, but I also see it in a sort of optimistic way that maybe these are the inherent questions at the heart of a democracy and it's when we stop asking those questions that we're really in trouble.
0: A century ago, Americans were coming off the heels of a devastating world war. Lobby groups were just beginning to exert their political influence. Americans saw a win for voting rights and a struggle over a voter's responsibility. It was a very different time in American democracy. But the questions they faced were familiar. And that's the point. We can try to answer the questions that Lippmann posed in public opinion. In fact, we must try, even if we won't succeed. Democracy is not a destination. It's an ongoing process. And the constant questioning is how we know it's working. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. Our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Lyceum is a curated podcast app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. Join our show's discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L Y C. E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts and links to the books we discussed. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next time on Writ Large, I talk with Dartmouth professor Joshua Bennett about what the 1937 novel Their Eyes Were Watching God can teach us about cancel culture. You have to sort of make a clean claim. And that claim also has to be tied to all of your identity categories at once, right? It just has to be like, look, you are, you know, a poor, non-disabled Black person from a certain part of the world. Thus, your politics need to look like this. And if they do not, then we reserve the right to keep you from being able to feed yourself. You can hear this episode right now in the Lyceum app. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M.